the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bantied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not... Um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore had been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are uh, persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And what we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over and setting up a theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we thought was nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No. But until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I don't... I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or or, or theocracy or, or or theology or things of that nature. And so, it probably is my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is. Um 
an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially, but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case, Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, Some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and and, uh, covert, others more overt and and even systematic. Why, Why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrarian to this notion of, of, again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control in society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians have used it, but they still have this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided it is only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's it's very hard for for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this, Doctor. Racism, I mean, clearly, an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual a sense of uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. 
We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Seemingly, um, what's the best way to phrase this? Um, Inconsistently applied. And and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their, 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or, or, or in, in, not, not consistently applied? Well, I think that those with Christianophobia, they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. That's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and, of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others... Uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with, and then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot, experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, Some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it. And now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so the way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. 
What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of a true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone studying race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, 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 what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonging to this group, would you more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that evangelical feminist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that Christian, anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end... It begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore there, there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there, there are sins Christians have done historically uh, concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not, are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive. And so while, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things, we've victimized some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented 
I told you about when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a it's sort of a both and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians, but we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people with Christian phobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that, you know, part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous, I mean, on and on, the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that uh, to a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this, and we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point in time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice, and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of... um skim the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias, the book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Christian and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. It was a number of years ago, traveling into China, when I first very clearly and distinctively became aware of the international problem of human trafficking. You know, we think of slavery and things of this sort from an American perspective, largely based on America's experience with the issue of slavery back in the 1800s. It was an eye-opening, startling experience for me to come to the realization that human trafficking is very much alive all over the world today, even taking place here in the United States. And it it takes place in, in many fashions for a lot of different reasons. In China, walking along a street in a major city of the south one day and seeing a number of young girls, some of whom 
had obvious limbs missing, had been maimed, perhaps, I thought, in an accident of some sort. And in talking with a missionary friend and interpreter, I began to inquire about the alarming number of young ladies that I saw on this particular street that seemed to have uh, a missing arm or a missing hand, something of this nature. And I inquired as to why this was, feeling it was kind of unusual. He went on to explain to me that, well, these are cast-offs. These are young girls who had been kidnapped from their home villages, brought into major cities, and sold as sex slaves, largely the tourist trade. And on occasions, these young girls would fail to cooperate, would perhaps try to uh, turn their captors into the authorities, and so as retribution, they would typically cut off an arm or a hand to maim them in one fashion or another as a means of defiguring them, making them less desirable, handicapping their ability to earn a living, and ultimately punishing them for not being cooperative with the sex traffickers. That opened my eyes to what has become a global problem. And as we talk about this topic today, I'm joined by Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations on behalf of International Justice Missions. They direct casework operations around the world in places from Latin America to Africa, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, developing intervention strategies and advocating with local and national authorities to address the problem of human trafficking around the globe. And, Sean, great to have you on the program today. Craig, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. That experience that I had in China a number of years ago, I sadly have come to discover, was not a unique and rare one, but in fact is taking place in more and more places around the globe today, even in so-called developed nations. Tell us why. Well, uh, there, the main problem, is, as we see it, is in uh, countries where the laws against these crimes are not enforced at all. In other words, the traffickers, the criminals, the pimps who are... Uh, uh, selling these children have no fear of any sanction, no fear of any re repercussion, no fear of any negative consequences, and so they engage in this practice with impunity, despite the fact that in almost every country uh, today it's against the law. It's against the law to sell children for sex. And yet in spite of that, of course, we see the sex trafficking trade uh, growing pretty significantly. Of course, we've perhaps caught a special or two of what goes on in, in places such as uh, parts of Southeast Asia, um, and countries that we're all too familiar with, Thailand, for example. And as this sex trafficking trade is, is growing and developing, um, talk to us a bit about, number one, how girls get even pulled into all of this. And, and why it seemingly is being allowed to flourish in some countries. Right. So the children that get involved typically um, are migrating. So they're, they're, they're from very poor and impoverished areas. And someone comes to their village, somebody from their same ethnic group, uh, they generally refer to them as an auntie, um, they come to the village, maybe they're from the village or a nearby village, and they, they say, tell their parents, you know, I can help your daughter find a good job in the city. The daughter feels a debt of gratitude to her parents uh, in many of these cultures, and, and she's obligated to care for them. And so she wants to help her parents, so she'll go with this auntie. And, and then the auntie, uh, it turns out, is a trafficker. And rather than give her a good job or take care of her, this young woman will be sold into a brothel. And once there, um, 
she's she's locked away she's she's kept from going for help but even if she could go for help usually she doesn't speak the local language um, she sees the police coming by the brothel and collecting money every week so there's really nowhere for her to turn she has no access to her family they're from a village up in the hills or far far away or even in another country in many cases and she's literally trapped and then uh, if she refuses to participate if she refuses to cooperate they'll deny her food um, in many cases, she'll be beaten. She'll be forced to watch, watch pornography. And just over time, they will wear her will down until she submits. She submits herself to this abuse um, that goes on day after day after day after day. And these girls, Sean, literally get trapped into this scenario. They're far away from home. They're embarrassed about the circumstances that have taken place. And quite often, those that are engaged in the sex trafficking threaten these girls and their families, don't they? Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, the trafficker will tell the girl, I paid good money for you, and if, if you don't cooperate, then, you know, I will find your family. Or there'll, there'll be stories of girls who have attempted to run away only to be brought back and killed in front of the other girls to frighten them into submission and cooperation. It's pretty horrifically manipulative, isn't it? I mean, aside from the horror of what they're drawing these young girls into, quite often, as you suggest, uh, they are trying to better their station in life, maybe move from a village into the city with the hope and promise of earning more money to take care of their family. Maybe there's somebody in the family that's ill. They need uh, money because of additional medical expenses, things of this sort. We've even seen cases of human sex trafficking taking place where women and men sometimes are being lured with promises of, of immigration into the United States, and if you come over, we'll help uh, pay your way and get you into the country, things of this sort, only to find out that once they arrive here, not having any contacts, having no command of the language, suddenly they're being forced into sex slavery. Exactly, yeah, and they have you know, their their passport, if they had one, has been taken away, so they're in the country illegally, and they feel there's nowhere to turn. If they go to the authorities, they'll be arrested for, you know, illegal immigration. We've seen the stories, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of places like Thailand, the Philippines, other so-called even uh, sex tourism destinations. And certainly I think there's a growing sense of awareness of the problem globally. But I'm curious, Sean, based on your years of involvement with international justice missions, I understand you, in fact, came out of private practice in your own law firm to be involved in this ministry organization. Are we hearing more of these stories simply because the reporting is getting better, or are we hearing more of these stories because the horrificness of this crime is on the increase? It's hard to say exactly. There there's certainly is a great deal uh, more reporting and a great deal of it, more attention being uh, focused on this issue. But at the same time, what you have is massive economic migration happening um, as people in more and poorer countries move towards those who are more wealthy, where there's more jobs, and this is a this is part of globalization. It's part of a global phenomena. At, at the same time, more and more roads are getting into these villages, you know, that have been formerly isolated and safe, and by their isolation, and so then the traffickers have access to more and more uh, people to to move into the sex trade. So, it's a combination of of both greater attention on the issue. And again, I, I do think that's expanding as the process of globalization and the process of economic migration uh, increases. Talk to us a bit about the role that 
international justice missions is taking in not only addressing increased awareness of this, uh, creating a more hostile environment for those engaged in the trafficking in the slavery end of of all of this, but then, too, uh, the hope that your organization is providing in helping to get these women and sometimes men out of this terrible lifestyle. Right. So when in our offices, so, for example, I worked in an office in Thailand, also an office in the Philippines. So we'll do investigations, and we have undercover investigators that will go out and locate these establishments that are selling children for sex. We'll document the identity of those children, the identity of the individuals that are selling them. Um, we'll, we'll bring that back. We have a team of lawyers that will review it. We'll write a report, and then we'll go to the local authorities and, the, and advocate with the authorities. And the evidence that we bring, of the it's a violation of law, but now they have such strong evidence of it that they can't deny it's happening. And so we'll push them and push them until they take action. And then... The, the, the object there is to ensure that the girls are rescued and that the individuals that were exploiting them are brought to justice. So there's an arrest, uh, criminal prosecution of the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners, hopefully leading to conviction, a, a sentence in prison. And then for the girls, we have teams of social workers that work with them and different um, homes. We call them aftercare homes, working on dealing with the uh, consequences of the abuse, both in terms of their emotional health, their spiritual health, and trying to find out whether they can return home, whether that's a viable option. If not, what would be a viable life option for them and giving them education and skills so that they can have a have new life. Oh, so there's just a multiplicity of levels that need to be addressed. And when we come back, I want to talk a bit about what's happening in terms of government involvement to try to deal with this, where the judicial system is, both here stateside and internationally, and most importantly, what the church, the body of Christ, can be doing in partnering with and cooperating with organizations like International Justice Missions um, to help not only raise awareness but also provide a way out for so many women all over the globe that have been caught up in human trafficking. I'm Craig Roberts here in tune with Lifeline. A brief time out. Back to more of our conversation with Sean Litton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest, Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations with International Justice Missions. You can get more information, by the way, on the organization online at IJM.org. That's IJM.org. We're talking about the plight of human trafficking around the globe. And, you know, it's interesting because so often when we think of slavery, we put it contextually in America historically, into what happened here in the United States and many parts of the globe back in the 1800s. And it seems to be somewhat satisfying to think that we've dealt with the issue here at home, and therefore it's no longer a problem. It's no longer our problem. But is it? 
Well, it is, in fact, at many levels. Not only does it continue to be a global problem, but in fact, in many respects, it's our problem. Both in terms of the fact that many of these women that are being kidnapped or given promises of a new life in America, brought here to be engaged, and they find out later, in the sex trade, and then literally end up getting trapped in that lifestyle with no avenue to turn, and here illegally, fearful of seeking out any assistance from police or the authorities, and then moreover, growing numbers of people who travel abroad to engage in so-called sex tourism. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, and yet one that is um, reporting perhaps gets a better awareness increases is something that all of us need to be more educated upon and do something to bring justice to these people. Sean Litton is with us. And, Sean, let's talk a bit about um, the problem, whether it goes from um, sexual assault, bonded labor. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why this kind of human trafficking is taking place. And as we suggest, it's not just a problem in the West. It's a problem uh, globally. Even the continent of Africa, we're seeing this take place. Yeah, it is a global uh, phenomenon, and it's it's important to understand that when we talk about human trafficking, we're not just talking about sex, sexual slavery or sex trafficking. It's any type of for, uh, labor without consent. We're basically talking about slavery. It takes many different forms. So it could be working on a cocoa plantation in West Africa or working on a fishing boat, forced little boys forced to work in a fishing boat in Ghana, or, you know, it could be young girls in brothels in Southeast Asia or... Um, people working in a brick kiln or a rice mill or a rock quarry in India. So it takes many different forms, but it's all slavery. Even we've seen a recent increased awareness of the so-called uh, blood diamond trade, too. Mm, yeah, that's another area where anytime, you know, there's a, a lack of law enforcement and a permissive atmosphere where people need labor, it's always going to, you know, slave labor is always cheaper, right? But if there's no law enforcement, then there's no reason for the people um, who own the facility to, to pay. So they can just trick people into it. There's a plentiful supply of people who are desperate for work. This is a problem taking place at many tiers in the West, in the developed nations, in developing nations, and one that I think needs to be dealt with at a variety of levels. Talk to us a bit about the role and uniquely that IJM is playing in all of this? Well, the first thing that we're doing is, is in the places where we're working in Southeast Asia and India and Africa and Latin America, we're basically shining a, a, a flashlight right on the issue. But a, a lot of people will say there's terrible trafficking, but to actually go in, to work undercover, to actually document the situation, to show exactly how it's happening and then to collaborate with the local justice authorities to take action, to take action against the perpetrators and to ensure the rescue and restoration of the victims. But that's not enough. It's just not enough to rescue, um, rescue the girls. You've got to do something that prevents other girls, other young women, other people from experiencing this abuse. And in order for that to happen, there needs to be a reliable deterrent. There has to be an end to impunity. And so we work with in building the capacity and the will of the local justice system to actually enforce the law and extend the protection of the law um, to all to all the vulnerable young women in the in the area, so that you know the, the brothel owners um, move away from from working with women against their will from from trafficking and young children. 
Is this casual, or are there degrees where it's highly organized and coordinated? I, I ask that question because there seems to be so many layers of this web that's taking place to, you know, kidnap women in one part of the world, manage to abscond them and get them into countries like the United States, and then get them into a system over here. It would seem to me that at certain levels, uh, Sean, this isn't very casual, but in fact, highly organized. Yeah. So it's true that it, there's a full range. So, for example, in the United States, it is highly organized. You're dealing with or, organized crime. Same thing in Eastern Europe. In Asia, there are places where the criminals are highly organized. In other places, it's it's just a simple brothel that's being run by, you know, a, a local businessman, et cetera, a local pimp. Um, in in terms of the the labor trafficking, it could just actually be the regular business practice of that area is that you you trick people into working in your brick kiln or your rice mill and then you you hold them there and you never let them leave and you and you pay them just enough to buy enough food to live and it's a regular business practice so it it's not it's not even seen as a crime even though it's against the law. I know that your organization has been successful at creating creating some pretty successful pilot programs in certain parts of the world. I know specifically in Metro Cebu in the Philippines over the last several years, um, you in working with local authorities and spreading out in, in, throughout the region uh, have been successful, I understand, Sean, in seeing a reduction in child sex trafficking of nearly 80%? Yeah, that's true. Um so in that in that case, um, it was a pilot project, and there was a uh, a measurement taken by a group of international criminologists to get a, a level of what was the level of abuse happening in the city, and then we instituted our program, basically increasing the capacity of law enforcement, the capacity of local prosecution, the judiciary, working with aftercare facilities to increase the level of services going to victims and. And then uh, three years later, when they came back and did another measurement to see the effect of the arrests and the rescues and all the rehabilitation, they found 80% fewer girls being exploited in the city and in the metropolitan area, and 75% fewer establishments that had any children at all. It It was a pretty amazing result. In addition to not only reducing the atmosphere that, that allows this typically to, to flourish, providing victim relief, aftercare, uh, accountability then, too, for the perpetrators of all of this, um, long-term transformation, do you get the sense that we're starting to make some headway and moving in the right direction? Absolutely. In the Philippines, for example, so after we instituted that project and the government saw the results, they came to us and said, can you help us on a national level? And and the, the the key issue with all these projects is, are they sustainable? In other words, unless it's the government itself doing it, no organization like IJM or any other organization can sustain it on their own. But in this case, the Philippines took the model in Cebu and is now replicating it throughout the country with their own money, their own resources. They're setting up new police units. They're expediting the prosecution of trafficking cases. They're increasing the capacity of the aftercare systems. The government's doing this on their own, and so we're seeing the ripple effect of just one model of showing how how it can work to increase the the, the the enforcement of the law can reduce the problem, and now it's being replicated throughout the entire country. And then the other countries where we're working, we're seeing the same effect, that gradually it's happening at a, a slower rate, but 
gradually, um, as people see the result, they, they, want, they want to put more energy into it. And, of course, your organization is helping to spearhead a lot of this, educate folks. And toward that end, we mentioned the fact that you are in town speaking at a conference dealing with this very issue. If ultimately, Sean, folks want to find out more about how they can get involved in partnering with IJM to make a difference and the role that the church needs to be playing, quite frankly, from the, the standpoint of our justice obligation, what kind of resources are available through the IJM website toward that end? Well, the the website is by far the best place to start. There's also um, a, an app you can download if you have a smartphone. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, there's, there's a book called Good News About a Justice that you can find you know, through, through the website or, or through a, um, a bookseller um, that kind of lays the foundation for what we're doing, what the biblical foundation is for seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed. Um, you can become a freedom partner. You can support the organization financially. You can pay for the rescue that the poor cannot afford to buy for themselves. Um, you can sign up to receive our uh, upcoming holiday gift catalog. You can give the gift of rescue to people. And most importantly, and what I'd love for people to do, is join us as prayer partners. Um, you can do that through the website, and then you'll get updates on kind of where we're working, the obstacles we're running against up against, and you can help us through prayer. You can actually pray for these operations that we're trying to get done to rescue these people. Absolutely. But ultimately, we want to encourage folks to not only get educated, get involved prayerfully, but get behind supporting the organization. They're working in countries uh, globally um, on a variety of continents. We mentioned Latin America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. You can get more information, again, online at IJM. That's for International Justice Missions, IJM.org. And Sean Litton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.